0: Today's podcast is sponsored by Ladder. Ladder makes it fast and easy to get affordable term life insurance without leaving your home. Just go to ladderlife.com slash gold today to see if you're instantly approved. Well, we had a roller coaster ride today on Wall Street. Many people think we've now seen capitulation because the markets were down big this morning. In fact, at one time, the Dow was down a little over 1,100 points. Other indexes, percentage-wise, were down even more. In fact, as of this morning, the NASDAQ was off to its worst annual start since 2008. And of course, we all know how 2008 turned out. We had a financial crisis, the market crashed, and the Fed ended up slashing interest rates down to zero, except right now, rates are already at zero, and the Fed is threatening to raise them, and the market is already tanking. And then we had a reversal. The Dow closed positive. All of the indexes managed to close positive on the day. The Dow was up just under 100 points, 99 points. So a big rally off the low. I think about a 4.2% if I'm getting that number right off the low. A little bit of a bigger reversal in the S&P rallied about 4.5% off its low. The NASDAQ had a 5.7% rally off the low. Russell 2000, almost as big a move, 5.3%. But where you saw the biggest reversals was in the most beaten down sectors. Look at the Cathie Wood ARK Innovation Fund. That made another new low for the move intraday, but then had a 13% rally to close positive. But it was down so much that even with that big rally, it was still barely up 3% on the day. The intraday low was just below 65 which means the fund was almost down 60% from its high. But the biggest reversal was in the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, which is highly correlated with the ARK Innovation Fund. That trust rallied 17% from its low. To close positive by 1.2%. That tells you how much the trust was down to have that bigger rally and barely be positive. In fact, the low was 22.22, which is about a 62% fall from last year's all-time record high. So a slightly bigger decline than the ARC Trust, but almost identical. I mean, these two are pretty much neck and neck. Although they're still behind MicroStrategy, which got down to $319 earlier this morning before rallying back to cut its losses. It closed to 370 45 down 4.23%. But at the low, MicroStrategy was down just over 75% from its all-time high. Of course, that stock is not doing nearly as bad as Robinhood, Robinhood at this morning's low of $11.15 was down about 87% from its all-time high. It was getting obliterated in the morning, but it managed a 17% rally to end the day up just under 1%, actually 0.7 tenths of a percent or something like that, but barely eked out a gain. But a lot of people, again, looking at these reversals think that we've put in some type of significant low here because we opened lower and then rallied and closed higher but to me it wasn't that significant of a reversal sure we closed positive But we didn't take out any key overhead resistance. It really wasn't a big enough rally. And I think most capitulation type rallies, they make the low very early in the morning and then rally the entire day and close the day with very substantial gains. The markets today were down for most of the day. You only got the rally towards the end of the day. And it wasn't very impressive to me. I think that there was more short covering in these names than new buying. I don't think the markets are out of the woods by a long shot. I think we've got more work to go on the downside. Didn't look like capitulation to me. I think people are still holding and hoping, rationalizing. And I think that's particularly true in the cryptocurrencies. Bitcoin, again, huge reversal intraday. Bitcoin traded below 33,000 was the low this morning. And as I am recording this podcast after the close on Monday, we're just below 37,000. That's about a 12% rally off the low. But again, if you look at a chart, this is all a bunch of noise. We're still well below the neckline of the head and shoulders top. And we still haven't even hit the $30,000 level, which I think is pretty much a sure thing that we're going to see that potentially much lower. But that's where the real support is. And to me, looking at this chart, there's no way we're not going to at least test that support. Personally, I don't think it's going to hold. But if we're going to hold anywhere, it's going to be around 30,000, most likely closer to 29,000. We'll probably have to take out some stops that are likely below 30,000. So I think if we're going to get a bigger bounce in Bitcoin, it's going to come from a lower level than the 33,000 that we traded this morning. But I think one of the things that is engendering some of this hope is the idea that Powell is going to pivot, that he's going to walk back the rate hikes or the number of rate hikes he's going to push against the market expectations that the fed is going to be more hawkish maybe he's even going to walk back some of the rhetoric regarding quantitative tightening because we're getting the FOMC meeting tomorrow is the beginning it's a two-day meeting so we're going to have to wait until wednesday to actually get it right from the horse's mouth when it comes to what the fed intends to do with rates But we did get some economic data earlier this morning that may have given some investors hope that we will get some type of pivot on Wednesday when we get the official announcement. We got the Chicago Fed National Activity Index for December and the expectation was for a positive 0.25 and that would have followed a 0.37 in November. Well, they actually revised November's up to 0.44, but then we got a negative 0.15 for December. So not only a negative number and a surprise at that because it was well below consensus, but it's an even bigger decline from the previous month. So the economy is rapidly decelerating and the news was even worse with the January PMI That's a January number, so it's even more recent. The consensus was for the composite index to come out at 56.7, and instead it came out at 50.8. That is barely above expansion. If you're below 50, you're contracting. The range of estimates was 55.5 to 56.9. So we're skirting along the edge of recession territory. The same thing when you strip out the service index. That was supposed to come in at 55. It came in at 50.9. Again, way below the range of estimates and barely above expansion territory. The manufacturing index, surprisingly enough, was the strongest, still below estimates. They were expecting 57 And we got 55, but these numbers are coming down. These are some of the worst numbers we've seen since the beginning of the pandemic. And to me, it looks like the evidence is really mounting that we are headed into recession. In fact, I think the economy started to weaken even before Powell started to get tougher on inflation by indicating that they would be less dovish when it comes to lift off on interest rates how soon they would raise rates, how many times they would raise rates, what they might do with the balance sheet. I think all this talk really started after the economy started to roll over. And so by the time the Fed actually gets around to liftoff in March and hiking rates, we could certainly be in a recession. In fact, Q1 could be the first quarter of the recession. And this is really uncharted territory for the Fed that it would actually begin a tightening campaign just at the onset of a recession because clearly this is going to exacerbate the severity of the recession because the Fed would be doing the opposite of what it typically does in a recession which is stimulate the economy, lower interest rates, print more money. They are threatening to do the opposite of that The economy is weakening and they're going to put nails in the coffin by raising rates and tightening up on policy. And in fact, if the process of the economy weakening and headed into recession, if that dynamic was already in place before Powell became less dovish and before the market started to crash. Think about how much worse the situation is going to be considering what's happening in the markets because now you have the reverse wealth effect to consider. You have crashes going on in stocks. You have crashes going on in cryptocurrencies. This impacts the net worth of a lot of Americans and therefore it's going to impact their decisions on saving, on spending, on whether or not they think they need a job and if they have to start looking for a job. So all of this is going to weigh on the economy. It's going to weigh on sentiment and all these other indicators that the Federal Reserve looks at. It's going to be painting a very different picture from the one they've been describing. Because every time Powell has had a press conference in the past, he's talked about how great the economy is, how strong the economy is. And because the economy is so strong, they can eventually raise rates. But for some reason, they didn't want to raise them right away, even though the economy was really strong. But they were still going to wait because there was no inflation. Well, now we got plenty of inflation. They're supposedly on the cusp. Of raising rates and tapering to zero their QE program. Yet now, this strong economy that they've been bragging about is imploding. And it's obvious. I mean, it's it's obvious that the economy is weakening as inflation was not transitory. And the Fed got that completely wrong. And if Powell is going to take questions after their decision to leave rates unchanged, which they're going to do, I mean, they should raise rates right now, they're not going to do that. But if Powell is still going to continue to posture as if a series of rate hikes are going to start in March, I don't know how he can also describe this economy as being so strong when so much data that has come out since the last time he gave one of these conferences has been so weak. And now you have the added negative of a collapsing market because, again, as I said in my last podcast Normally, what the Fed does when the market is crashing is they try to prop the market back up by easing policy, by cutting rates or expanding QE. And they are, again, threatening to do the opposite of that right now, which is going to make a bad situation in the stock market even worse. And of course, the other problem for the country is the impact that rising interest rates are going to have on on the ability of debtors to continue to service their loans and make payments, in particular, the United States government. In fact, I actually saw an exchange earlier this morning on CNBC between Joe Kernan and one of the economists at one of the big Wall Street investment banks. And I don't remember which one, but what she was saying is something that I've been hearing and reading a lot of the other big bank economists have been saying, and kernan asked her about the predicament that the fed is in with respect to its ability to raise rates as much as it may feel is appropriate given the level of inflation because of the enormity of debt particularly debt owed by the united states treasury we have almost a 30 trillion dollar national debt and that if the fed were to raise interest rates it would be very difficult if not impossible for the u.s government to service that debt of course What Kernan didn't even mention is the problem for the Federal Reserve itself because the Fed's balance sheet is loaded up with U.S. Treasuries and raising interest rates is also going to lower the value of their portfolio because long-term bonds are going to be dropping and so it's going to impose losses on the Fed and in order to keep the Fed solvent the U.S. Treasury is going to have to bail out the Fed but of course the Treasury is going to be dealing with its own problems. How is it supposed to bail out the Fed? Because normally it's the Fed that's been bailing out the U.S. Treasury. Yet if interest rates go way up, it's going to be the Federal Reserve that is counting on the Treasury to bail it out. But it's impossible because the Federal Reserve is the one that prints money. The Treasury doesn't print anything. So the Fed is able to bail out the Treasury very easy because it can print money. But when the Fed is no longer printing money, then the Treasury has no ability to bail it out. It can't even bail itself out because it has to either raise taxes significantly or cut spending significantly. Neither of those are politically viable. But anyway, getting back to this question that Kernan asked about, isn't the Fed in a box because they can't really raise rates as much as they need? The answer that he got was, well, the Fed doesn't really have to raise rates that much anymore because the neutral rate of interest is now so much lower than it used to be. And the reason for that is because we now have a lot of debt. And so because we have so much debt, the Fed doesn't have to raise interest rates nearly as much as it did in the past in order to slow down the economy because the economy is already weighed down by so much debt. So isn't that convenient because we have so much debt, we get rewarded by having lower rates of interest on that debt. It's almost like it's a good thing that we have all this debt. Because now the Fed doesn't really have to raise interest rates very much because we have so much debt. And that means we don't have to worry about it. We don't have to worry about really high interest rates because we all have so much debt. Well, you know what? We have to worry even more about really high interest rates because we have so much debt. Having all that debt doesn't give us a get out of jail free card when it comes to raising rates or fighting inflation. In fact, if you even have any rudimentary knowledge of how credit works. In general, the more debt you have, the higher the rate of interest you ultimately face. Because creditors, when they look at a highly indebted borrower, they recognize that that borrower has a greater likelihood of not being able to pay because they have so much debt. So as you get more and more debt, the rate of interest that you have to pay to go deeper into debt goes up. Right? It's when you have a little bit of debt and creditors are confident that you can repay the loans that you get rewarded with lower interest. What this economist was saying was because we have so much debt and we've already borrowed so much money, the consequence is not that we have to pay higher rates to keep borrowing, but we get to pay even lower rates to borrow more because we can't afford to pay higher rates. Well, you don't get that passed. Just because you can't afford to pay higher rates doesn't mean the market's not going to charge you higher rates. It's going to happen. Now, when it comes with the U.S. government, obviously, the U.S. Treasury is not going to default because the Fed can print. Now, if the Fed is not printing and the Fed is threatening not to print, the Fed is threatening to do the opposite, to shrink the money supply. And if the Fed is shrinking the money supply and interest rates go up, then the U.S. government will default, which is why I don't think the Fed is going to do what it's pretending because it's not going to let the U.S. Treasury default. But this economist didn't even think it was a concern because she was under the false impression that the Fed won't have to raise interest rates enough for it to be a problem because the enormity of the debt is basically our salvation because it prevents the Fed from having to raise interest rates too much because we have so much debt. Now, maybe this is just her way of not wanting to deal with the obvious catastrophic consequence of what might happen. But this whole concept that we have a lower neutral rate just because we have a lot of debt is not true. And in fact, you can't fight inflation with a neutral policy anyway. We can't go from ultra easy to neutral and think that's enough to get the job done. If you want to fight inflation successfully, you need to go to tight money. So we just can't find a neutral rate. We have to find a rate of interest that is going to bend the inflation curve. That's going to slow down this bubble economy. That's going to rein in the spending. That's going to cause people to save money rather than borrow and spend money. But any interest rate high enough to do that is too high for the markets to bear and it's too high for the government to pay. So we can never get to a level of interest rates that will be sufficient to do the job. So we're pretending that we don't have to because we're pretending that the simple fact that we have all this debt means that we're going to get a pass. And if you continue that logic to the extreme, as the national debt keeps getting bigger and bigger and the economy keeps going more and more into debt as corporations take on more leverage, as individuals borrow more money, that somehow that neutral rate gets lower and lower and lower until eventually I guess the neutral rate is zero or at some point maybe the neutral rate becomes some type of negative rate. And in real terms, as far as they're concerned, it already is because even the rate hikes that the Fed is contemplating in real terms don't even deliver positive real yields yields are substantially negative even if the fed is able to deliver the rate hikes it is now suggesting that it is prepared to deliver over the course of the next year or two but all this amounts to just a rationalization like an ostrich kind of sticking your head in the sand because you don't want to deal with the obvious consequences of what has happened And this debt crisis, this currency crisis that is rapidly approaching, as we finally have a date with destiny regarding a debt. That is impossible to service, let alone repay. I mean, repaying the debt is completely out of the question, but we actually can't even service it. And the only way we can pretend to do it is to keep interest rates really low. We were able to do that when we can claim we had no inflation. It's impossible to do that when there's obviously a lot of inflation and the Fed is pretending that it's actually going to do something about it. We all die eventually. That's unfortunate. But sometimes we die sooner than we expect. And that's really unfortunate. But it can be a tragedy if those you leave behind don't have the resources to take care of themselves. That's why it's important that you have term life insurance. You don't need whole life because it doesn't matter if you die later in life when your children no longer depend on you. The problem is if you die earlier in life when they still do. And so you want to maximize the amount of insurance that you buy for as little money as possible in premiums so you can save the rest to spend now or invest. And that's where Ladder comes in because they help you get the term life policy you need. And best of all, when you're applying for $3 million in coverage or less, you can do it all digitally. There's no doctors, no needles, no paperwork. To apply, all you need is a phone and a laptop at a few spare minutes. Ladder's smart algorithms work in real time so you'll find out instantly if you're approved. And if you prefer to talk to an actual person, their team of licensed agents are standing by to help and they don't work on commission so they'll help you without trying to upsell you. There are no hidden fees and you can cancel at any time. And if you change your mind in the first 30 days, you get a full refund. Ladder policies are issued by insurers with long proven histories of paying claims. Since life insurance costs more as you get older, now's the time to cross it off your list. Go to ladder.com slash goal today to see if you're instantly approved. That's ladderlife.com Dot com, l-a-d-d-e-r gold to see if you're instantly approved so it's going to be very interesting to see a what Powell says on wednesday most importantly too not necessarily just the prepared remarks but how he answers or doesn't answer the questions he's going to get from the reporters Who are there? And the reporters are not going to ask as many softball questions, I think, as the senators were asking him in his confirmation hearing. I think he's going to get somewhat better questions that are going to be more difficult for him to answer or avoid answering. But it's going to be very interesting to see what happens with that conference and also to see how the market reacts to it. Personally, I think we are building for a big rally in the precious metals. We didn't get a big rally today, although gold was positive, showing its strength. It was never really down at all today, even when the markets were on the lows. And gold closed up about $7, $8. We're above eighteen forty, We're still almost near the highs of that $30 rally day. Silver did not hold up nearly as well. It was down about $0.28 cents on the day but well off the lows i think it was down 50 or 60 cents earlier in the day and the silver stocks and i talked about these stocks on my last podcast because on wednesday when we got that 70 cent rally followed by the 50 cent rally the previous day we had a lot of these silver stocks up 12 13 percent in one day well between friday and today at least on the lows they surrendered pretty much 100% of that gain. Now, they did close off the lows, but none of these silver stocks closed positive. They were still down quite a bit, maybe 4% or 5% on the day, but a lot of them were down 9 or 10% near the lows of the day. Gold stocks were not down nearly as much. A few of them managed to eke out small gains by the close. But if you just look at the chart, the silver breakout remains intact. We had a bit of a pullback, but to me, we still have a nice bottom and a breakout, and gold held up like a champ, and it looks like it wants to go higher. I think one of the things that may have held it back was the weakness in the overall market today, but that weakness may not be there tomorrow. We may get a little relief in the markets until we hear from Powell on Wednesday, and I think in that environment, we could see another big leg up. In gold and silver, because even if we get this Powell pivot, which we very well may get given the severity of the correction that the Fed is looking at, you know, the Russell 2000, when it was down this morning, was well into bear market territory, right? Down about 22% or so from its peak. I mentioned on my weekend podcast that I thought. The Russell 2000 would slip into bear market territory on Monday, and that's exactly what it did. But it didn't close in bear market territory based on the reversal. But again, I think a lot of that was based on some hope that we're going to get some help from the Fed. And again, there is a good chance that Powell is going to try to provide that hope. It's going to be a fine line that he's going to try to walk. Because he's going to try to say, yes, we're still fighting inflation and we don't care about the stock market, yet he's going to have to do something to save the stock market because Powell does care about the economy and the Fed has bet the entire economy on the bubble in the stock market and other markets. It's all been a wealth effect. Again, I've talked about that on this podcast, but the whole goal of... Of quantitative easing from the very beginning was to inflate asset prices and to create a wealth effect associated with higher asset prices well now that those asset prices are falling it's a reverse wealth effect that paper wealth is vanishing and so whatever benefits the fed thought were derived from having high asset prices are now being lost as those high asset prices are coming down. So, the Fed obviously doesn't want to see all of its work undone, but it can't admit that it is altering its monetary policy based on weakness in the stock market, even though that's what it's going to do and that's what everybody expects it to do. It can't admit that it's doing that. So, Powell has to find a way to basically have his cake and eat it too when it comes to Fed credibility on trying to fight inflation, but trying to prevent the markets and the economy from imploding based on the collateral damage from this inflation fight, even though the artillery that he's talking about using is wholly inadequate, for the task at hand because you've got an official inflation rate of 7% an unofficial rate much higher than that and all the Fed is talking about is these incremental baby steps when it comes to trying to lift rates off from zero and bring them back to 1% or 2% which is still a highly stimulative inflationary interest rate and I don't care how much debt you have you don't get a free pass you don't get to fight inflation with low interest rates just because fighting it with high interest rates would be too painful because you have so much debt that's why you don't allow the debt to build up this much that's why the fed made a mistake in kicking the can down the road as many times as it did because it made the problem that much worse and it means when you ultimately deal with that bigger problem you have a lot more pain the pain doesn't go away just because fighting the problem would be so painful no you're just gonna have to suffer that pain that is the problem and nobody wants to admit that and of course, another place where nobody wants to admit the extent of the pain that is going to be felt is these speculators in these cryptocurrencies. I really get a kick out of watching the rationalization among the Bitcoin pumpers to try to validate the investment case For Bitcoin as it is imploding I mean it's clearly not digital gold I mean forget about all the real comparisons I make between Bitcoin and gold gold was up today there was no point in time really where gold was down maybe a buck or two or something like that but gold held up and Bitcoin imploded and then had a big rally gold doesn't do that gold doesn't move in these massive intraday gyrations And so a lot of the people that were pressing this digital gold narrative have now basically stopped saying that. What I'm hearing now is that Bitcoin is like a tech stock. In fact, it's a high beta tech stock. It's got more volatility than your typical tech stock because they're trying to blame the sell-off on Bitcoin on the sell-off in risk assets overall. And they're saying, look, you know, of course, Bitcoin is going to go down because, you know, the Fed is tightening and everybody is getting rid of their high-risk investments. And so institutions are selling their bitcoin except that's the opposite story they were telling us when institutions were buying it they were supposedly buying it as a hedge as a non-correlated asset as digital gold you know every time bitcoin fails the pumpers have to reinvent it because initially it was a currency we were going to use it as a medium of exchange But then because it was too slow and too expensive and there were other cryptocurrencies that were better suited for that function, well, then Bitcoin really became this non-correlated asset. That was the beauty of Bitcoin. You can buy it and it would be totally uncorrelated to anything else you own. And that was the value proposition that it held For a portfolio, it's like, hey, buy this because it will reduce the risk in your portfolio because it's totally non-correlated. And so when everything else is going down, this is the one thing that might be going up. And then when it appeared that it wasn't totally non-correlated, it really became digital gold. Hey, it's going to act like gold in your portfolio, only better because it's digital. It's an improved version of gold. It's gold 2.0. So it's going to go up more than gold. In fact, it's going to go way up. You can get rich with digital gold, which in and of itself should have been a warning because that's not what gold is about. Gold is a conservative store of value. And in theory, if Bitcoin is going to be a digital version of that, well, then it should be a conservative investment, not an investment that's going to go way up. But now, again, they're just saying, well, it's like a tech stock. So it's not really digital gold because it failed at being a currency. It failed at being non-correlated because it's clearly correlated And it's not digital gold, because that should be obvious by now. But the point is, if the new iteration of Bitcoin is that it's just like a tech stock, well, it's not like a tech stock. Because at least in theory, even the tech stocks that are losing money now are going to make money in the future. Now, maybe they never will, and they're going to go bankrupt. But if you are buying one of these money-losing technology stocks, What you are effectively doing is you're placing a bet that today's losses are just a down payment on tomorrow's profits that they're just losing money in the short run to ultimately build a very profitable business. But you don't want to wait until it's profitable to buy it. You want to buy it now in advance of that profitability because you think you're getting a better price and that if you wait until it makes a profit, well, the price will be expensive. And so you want to kind of get in on the ground floor. But Bitcoin is never going to make a profit because it's not a business. So you can't say Bitcoin is like a tech stock. It's nothing like a tech stock. Yes, It's speculative like some tech stocks but you're not speculating on earnings. You're just speculating on price. The only thing that Bitcoin is actually correlated is the 17,000 other altcoins because they're exactly the same as Bitcoin. That's where there's a correlation. You can't say it's like a tech stock. You can't say it's like gold because it's nothing like either. But if Bitcoin is just like a tech stock, but it's never going to have any earnings, then why buy it? There's no reason for any institution to have Bitcoin in their portfolio and i think they're going to figure that out i think this huge decline is going to finally cause a better understanding of bitcoin among institutions and that means the party's over because the institutions were supposed to be like the bag holders they were going to be the new buyers that was going to drive bitcoin to a hundred thousand and higher well if they want no part of it if all you've got are The small guys, in fact, as CNBC was touting Bitcoin today, you know, as it's crashing, they're continuing to sing its praises as they're reinventing it as a tech stock. But they actually mentioned that only 32% of all the Bitcoin that are held in wallets are now held at a profit. So more than two thirds of the people that own Bitcoin are losing money. So when everybody wants to talk about how it's been the best investment over the last 10 years... While that's true for the people who bought it 10 years ago, most people who bought Bitcoin are losing money. So for them, it hasn't been a great investment. It was a great investment for the people who sold it to them and bought it a long time ago, but it's not a good investment for the people who bought it now. And I don't even think that counts the people who bought Bitcoin through the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust. They're getting obliterated. And in fact, if you just counted the CNBC audience, what percentage of those guys are ahead in their Bitcoin, it's probably negligible. I guess it's less than 5% because they didn't really start touting it like crazy until last year. And nobody who bought Bitcoin last year is making money. A lot of people have lost half their money and that's assuming they didn't use leverage. And if they bought the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, which is advertised nonstop every day on CNBC, well, they're down even more. In fact, I'm not making this up, but one of the anchors on CNBC described this huge volatility in the price of Bitcoin really a big collapse not really volatility but a crash and she described it as being part of Bitcoin's appeal after all traders like this volatility that's part of what gives Bitcoin value is that it can collapse at any moment and it has all this volatility well if that's what Bitcoin is if it's a highly volatile asset and it's all over the place and it can crash at any moment and that's what's good about it because you can trade it that completely defeats the narrative that it's any kind of store of value or any kind of inflation hedge Bitcoin is trying to be all things to all people which proves it's nothing to anybody a couple of other points though I wanted to make about Bitcoin and this is just looking at what some of the people are saying about it I look on my Twitter and every time I tweet about it I get a lot of engagement from the Bitcoin people in fact there's a lot of bots now that are attacking my Twitter feed and I apologize for that I'm trying to see what I can do to clean that up but I keep getting all these spam right replies every time I tweet and I have a feeling that maybe they're coming from the Bitcoin community trying to kind of screw up my Twitter account but there is a lot of legitimate engagement that I get from my Twitter followers. Followers on that topic. And sometimes I try to go back and forth and I try to see if I can talk some sense into them. Well, one comment in particular that struck my mind somebody was talking about the fact that we were on a gold standard and it didn't work. The gold standard failed. So why am I obsessing with something that's failed? Why don't I embrace something new, Bitcoin? Because Bitcoin hasn't failed. And so maybe Bitcoin will succeed. And a lot of people, I think, maybe in the Bitcoin community, are under that impression that the gold standard failed. The gold standard didn't fail. We failed to stay on the gold standard. In fact, the gold standard succeeded so well that the government went off of it. The gold standard was a victim of its own success. The purpose of having a gold standard is to keep the government honest, to keep the government fiscally responsible. That's why the founding fathers put us on a gold standard they didn't want paper money they didn't want the government to be able to just print money they wanted to discipline the government they wanted to create a small government and they wanted it to stay small and so they put us on a gold standard they also believed in sound money they didn't like inflation and so we thrived while we were under a gold standard the problem is after roosevelt came in and wanted to expand government he had to devalue the dollar against gold and he made gold ownership illegal in order to do that and then we had an even bigger expansion of the welfare state under Lyndon Johnson in the 1960s. And by the 1970s, it was clear that we couldn't continue. The gold standard wasn't going to allow us to continue. And had we stayed on the gold standard, the government would have had to make some very difficult but good political decisions. The government was going to have to dramatically cut spending in order to stop the gold drain. They were going to have to allow a significant deflation to occur to bring prices back down consistent with. $35 gold or they were going to have to dramatically devalue the dollar and bring the price of gold way up which could have been also very embarrassing but also they would have had to balance the budget raise taxes cut spending they would have had to do a lot of fiscally responsible things and Nixon didn't want to do any of those things so the only way to continue to be reckless and irresponsible was to go off the gold standard because the gold standard doesn't work for a reckless and irresponsible government that wants more power and wants to deprive the citizens of more of their liberties. But it works great for citizens that want to retain their liberties and restrain the government. So the problem was we gave up on the gold standard. We allowed Nixon to take us off that standard. Now, how did he do it? Well, he promised us it was just temporary, right? The government always tells you, oh, it's temporary. Don't worry about it. Never believe the government. It was Milton Friedman who said nothing is as permanent as a temporary government program. And that has certainly been the case with going off the gold standard. So it's not the gold standard that failed. It succeeded. The government failed. Or more correctly, the people failed. Because the government succeeded in getting rid of the gold standard, which is what it wanted, because that's like high school students at a prom, they succeed in tying up the chaperone in the closet, right? So now they can go have fun and the chaperone can't do anything about it. So that was success on the part of the students, but it was a failure on the part of the school or the parents or the chaperone, because now the kids are going to run out of control. So it's the country's fault for allowing the government to remove the restraints that the framers of our country had placed upon them by putting the country on a gold standard. But the point of saying that, well, the gold standard didn't work, so we should try the Bitcoin standard, the government is never going to go on the Bitcoin standard for the same reason it went off the gold standard. The government can't print gold and it can't print Bitcoin. So if the government had to earn Bitcoin the way it had to earn gold by raising taxes, then it's got the same problem with a Bitcoin standard that it had with a gold standard. Except, of course, Bitcoin standard can't even work. At least the gold standard worked. Bitcoin standard is a fantasy that only works in the delusional minds of some hardcore libertarians. But even if it could work, to expect the government to voluntarily embrace it is nonsense. I mean, the only thing that we can do individually is to go back on a gold standard ourselves and start using gold as money, using gold as a meaning of exchange, because we use gold as a meaning of exchange before government got us to use their paper we can go back to doing that, it worked great. We'll never be able to use Bitcoin. Now, all the people are saying, well, we can use Bitcoin because gold is inconvenient because you can't transport it as easily, it's not as divisible and Bitcoin can do all the things that gold can do only better, except the one thing that gold does that Bitcoin can't is what gives it all of its value in that gold is a valuable metal that's used for all sorts of things and Bitcoin is worthless and used for nothing individuals can go back on a gold standard we can marry blockchain and the internet to gold we can have digital currencies privately issued that are backed by gold that can function as a medium of exchange as a store of value as a unit of account of a medium of deferred payment it can work as private money even better than it worked in the past gold is the future not bitcoin And all of the resources and the effort that is now trying to push these cryptocurrencies on people should instead be devoted to trying to restore real sound money to people in the form of gold and silver. But the bottom line on Bitcoin, despite how many times its promoters want to reinvent it every time it fails, I think my description of Bitcoin from the beginning is the most valid. The bottom line on Bitcoin is that all it is is a collectible digital token. People who own Bitcoin are, in fact, collectors. And what are they collecting? They're collecting Bitcoin. And they think they're going to make a lot of money off these Bitcoin collections because they think other collectors are going to come into the market and they're going to pay even higher prices for this scarce token that they own because there's only 21 million Bitcoin in existence. And if a lot of people want to collect them, well, they're going to have to bid up the price. But in reality, Bitcoin itself is just an arbitrary quantity of Satoshis. It's 100 million Satoshis equal one Bitcoin. So if I'm going to start up a Bitcoin collection, I don't need 100 million Satoshis. I can start my collection with a few thousand Satoshis. I mean, what's the difference between a few thousand and having a hundred thousand? I mean, they don't really look any different. They're just on your computer. And if you think about a Satoshi rather than a Bitcoin and think about there's 2.1 quadrillion Satoshis, when you think about it that way, they don't seem that scarce. You know, there's not even 8 billion people on the planet, including all the little children. But if you assume 8 billion people and 2.1 quadrillion Satoshis, that works out to 262,500 Satoshis. They call them SATs for short, per person. I don't know about you, but if every person on the planet could have 262,500 Satoshis, doesn't seem very scarce to me. It seems like they're very plentiful and people can have all that you want. And anybody who wants to start A Satoshi collection has plenty to choose from. But I don't see how these collections have any value because every single Satoshi is identical to every other Satoshi. So it doesn't matter which one you own. They're all exactly the same. So how does that give any value to the collector when you're collecting something that so many other people have and they're exactly the same as yours. And it's not like any of them are in better condition. They're all in the exact same condition. There's nothing that can differentiate or distinguish one Satoshi from any other Satoshi. So it doesn't seem to me That this really lends itself to a collectible because there's just so many of them now a lot of people will immediately say oh Peter you're wrong what difference does it make how many satoshis there are because how many grains of gold are there I mean you could take a gold coin and you could break it down into all these little tiny little specks and that doesn't devalue the gold so why should the ability to break a bitcoin into 100 million satoshis why should that devalue The package of satoshis into one bitcoin and there's a big difference you see gold is an actual metal that's used for actual stuff and because of that whatever your use case is you need a certain quantity of gold so let's say you need an ounce of gold you can't get by with a gram because you need an ounce so you have to keep buying grams until you have an ounce because an ounce is what's needed to do the job but there is no particular job that anybody does with Bitcoin. If you've got a Bitcoin collection or a Satoshi collection, doesn't matter whether you have a hundred, a hundred thousand or a million, you can't do anything with an entire Bitcoin. And that's because you can't do anything with all the Satoshis that comprise that Bitcoin. So if I want to collect Satoshis, it's fine to have 10,000 in my collection, a hundred thousand in my collection. It doesn't matter. But it does matter if I'm a jeweler and I need a certain quantity of gold. I can't get by with a few specs. I need enough gold to make the jewelry that I need. Now, if Bitcoin were really used as money, then you could make the argument that the divisibility isn't an issue because sometimes you need more money for different transactions, but it's not used as money. It's just collected. It's just hoarded for appreciation. That's the only thing it's used for. We know it's not digital gold. It's not really a tech stock. It's not being used as a currency. I'm correct in that it is a collectible item. It's a collectible token. And because it's merely a collectible token, there is no specific requirement that any collection be of any size. And anybody who wants to start a collection, they can start it with one sat and now they're a collector. And there's no particular reason that they need to have any more. So personally, I think the fact that Bitcoin is divisible into so many identical parts makes it even less valuable because it's less scarce, because there is no real reason that anybody needs a whole Bitcoin when a fraction of a Bitcoin can do the exact same thing, which is nothing.